Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats, and we invite you to subscribe to our feed. You'll always get the new episodes through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast link. You'll find Political Beats there and all the other fine National Review podcasts that they have to offer. Listen, enjoy, share, Please leave reviews as well. I'm Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Um, I, You know, Scott, I'm looking out of the road, rushing under my wheels. I guess I don't know how to tell you how crazy this all feels. I'm looking back at the friends that I used to turn to to pull me through. I look in their eyes and I see that they're all podcasting, too. And we should mention we're recording this podcast on a bus traveling somewhere around the midwest so that's a bonus and, point too. and our guest is playing the fiddle <laughs> find jeff on twitter at esoteric cd our guest for this episode is talking points memos senior political reporter covering congress and the permanent campaign find him at talkingpointsmemo.com on twitter at cam underscore joseph at various shows standing back by the soundboard it's cameron joseph cameron thanks for joining us here on political beats Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. So as we uh, as we welcome you, uh, you on the program, I uh, gave a brief bio, but we'd like to have our guests tell us a little bit more about how you ended up in this uh, political ecosystem and with your current position, Cameron. Yeah, well, for a while when I was a kid, I thought I wanted to be a music reporter, which is what my dad had done, and did some interviews, had a radio show, realized I didn't actually like interviewing musicians that much, at least the ones I was talking to, wasn't that interesting. Uh, Politicians are a lot more interesting and started doing that in college, came in, uh, had an internship at the Hill newspaper, loved it, Uh, worked in National Journal for a couple of years, the Almanac American Politics, worked at the Hill for a few years. I was over at the New York Daily News during the uh, 2016 election cycle, or most of it at least. Uh, I was their bureau chief and covering Hillary Clinton, which was pretty wild. Uh, A lot of Trump coverage, too. And uh, been uh, talking points memo for about two years, covering Congress, covering the campaigns or the permanent campaign, because it never really does end. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, uh, you know, music is my love, but uh, politics is my fascination so it's been a lot of fun and this of course uh, the show where we talk with people in and around the world of politics not about anything political except those things we just heard the rest of the show focused on music and our guests uh favorite or perhaps just chosen artist we'll find out in a second which that is for cameron joseph uh today's artist uh one of the uh one of the absolute uh uh, uh pictures of west coast singer songwriter uh jackson brown jackson brown is cameron joseph's here to talk about and uh, cameron we turn the floor back over to you Tell us why you love Jackson Brown, how you got into him, and why anybody else should care about Jackson Brown. Well, I would argue that Jackson Brown may be, I think he's in the pantheon of the great singer-songwriters, if not the best, definitely one of the few top ones. I would put him up with Elton John, Bob Dylan. Uh, He, I don't know if he is my only favorite artist, but he was certainly my first favorite artist. My dad was a rock journalist, as I mentioned. Uh, and as soon as I got a little boombox, uh, when I was about seven or eight years old, he started making me mixtapes and that had stuff like Crosby, Stills and Nash on it, had Peter Gabriel on it, Linda Ronstadt, things I really loved. But Jackson Brown, uh, and Warren Zevon were kind of the first two true favorites of mine. And, and I just fell in love with Jackson. Uh, he's just a 
brilliant, brutal lyricist. Uh, sometimes he can get a little too on the nose, uh, but I think that his stuff from the seventies, uh, both both the lyrics and and the way he constructs the songs and the harmonies are just damn near perfect. And uh, yeah, I, I think there, there's a depth and a heft to him that some of the other Southern California mellow mafia folks <laughs> didn't have, you know, I, I, like the, I think the Eagles have some decent music. Uh, I'm not in the big Lebowski camp on the Eagles are the worst band ever <laughs> created, but they're, they're not my favorite. Um, you know, I, I, and I think it just goes to show, I mean, how many people have covered Jackson Brown, how many people have recorded Jackson Brown over the years. Uh, some of these songs are just perfect pop gems. And I think that when he stretches out, it actually gets more interesting. You know, some of his, uh, more heavily overtly political stuff i think gets a little too literalistic but he does these kind of big step backs on society and moving through society and you know what what it's like trying you know getting older trying to figure out your role realizing that maybe it isn't all it's cracked up to be even when things are going well on the surface and he's he's just there's some cutting lyrics there In that Big Lebowski, the Eagles are the worst band ever uh, category. We actually did an episode on the Eagles with James Poulos, and uh, I, 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 I was I was very negative. Uh, I have to say, the irony here is that uh, while I was always a pointed non-fan of the Eagles, I've, actually, it's one of those funny things. It's like say when I was in high school, you know, like I was a you know hipster '60s kid. I was like, oh, only the Beatles and the Who and the Stones are worthwhile. But the the band that I would defend also is like the Monkees. The Monkees were great. Well, <laughs> in in college, it was a similar thing for me, where like nobody thinks Jackson Brown these days is that cool. I mean, I mean, I was in college in 1998. You know, even then, it was he was like, well, you know, what is he up to these <laughs> days? But man, I loved his stuff. I found his stuff. I I found it first uh, from, I guess, Running on Empty, which is the song that you would always hear on the radio. But my dad liked this music, and you know, you, you do get you catch a lot of influences from him. He always loved Somebody's Baby off of the Fast Times at Ridgemont High soundtrack, and uh, I went back and I got his stuff. And you know, I was just talking with you guys about this earlier, uh, right before we started the show. Like when I was uh, a 17, 18 year old kid, I loved Brown just the quality of the observational 
um, lyrics of his and his music, the, the very piano, guitar-based ballads, stuff that I love to play, play for other people, play for girls, I might point out. Um, and it was wonderful for me in that moment. And then I come back around to it now at the age of 38. I'm married. I got a kid. I got a you know career and a life. And you listen to this stuff and it, it, it actually like it breaks your heart when you realize I've become the person that he was singing about in all of these songs. And we'll get to some of those, particularly when we get to The Pretender, which is a, a song and an album that just, you know, now these days it almost hurts with how achingly perfect it is to sum up like a lot of the things that I've been through in my life. Between the longing for love and the struggle for the legal tender Where the sirens sing and the church bells ring and the jumpman pounds his fender Where the veterans dream of the fight fast asleep at the traffic Children solemnly wait for the ice cream vendor Out into the cool of the evening Strolls the pretender He knows that all his hopes and dreams Begin and end there but the thing about Brown that, that it's so easy to forget is that because, you know, he had that mellow singer songwriter sound, perfect studio guys playing the instruments, you know, doing, you know, sort of working through either country rock or pop. But, you know, always these, these very sort of like low key textures in his music, you know. There's there's no commercial space for this sort of music anymore. And I think that that's an incredible shame because his his lyrics, again, very serious guy. He, 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 there, there, there's there's no there's there's not a lot of humor in what he writes, but there's a lot of like actual thoughtful observation mm -hmm. going all the way. The thing about Brown and this is the thing that's hilarious is that. He started doing this when he was 15, 16 years old. He was a kid born in Southern California, and he was like a, a real precocious little whelp. He, he was writing music, you know, by the time he was a freshman in high school, and he was farming it out to people. This would be in the mid-60s. He got the birds to record a song of his that, that actually ended up as an outtake. It's called May Jean Goes to Hollywood. You know, he got Nico to record a song of his. Uh, Nico, when she did her, uh, you know, her solo album. Um, yeah, he was all over that album. It was... Yeah, and he played on it, too. Actually played yeah. excellently on it. We'll get to that. That song in particular is a real highlight of his career. Uh, and then, finally, actually rather late in the game he secured himself a recording contract and you know his own album deal so where he'd be putting out his music it's sort of like Joni Mitchell Joni Mitchell and of course those two had a relationship at one point as mm. well this whole Southern California thing is very incestuous the, the interaction between Jackson Brown and Crosby Stills and Nash and the Eagles and Joni Mitchell and all these these you know um, you know you know big pop rock stars of the era in, in SoCal and that era, they all kind of came together and they're all singing and playing on each other's records. Uh, but what you found out about him is that he had a completely different approach from what I've always thought is a rather sort of jejun 
and uh, you know childishly hippie approach of say Crosby, Stills and Nash, who uh, you know a lot of good music there, but um, I'll never be a fan of of most of their conceits. But Brown wrote about adult things, yeah, and he was writing about adult issues when he was a child, yeah. which is weird. He was like an old man inside a young man's body, and his his seventies work in particular he put out only five albums. By the way, this is why I always suspected he was really good friends with Bruce Springsteen. They're you know very close friends, and they collaborate on a lot of stuff they even shared producers um springsteen was of course you know famous fuss budget about putting out albums you know he's only gonna you know put out an album when he thinks it's ready he's gonna work on a ton of stuff and he's gonna leave most of it behind well brown similarly took his time an entire decade from 72 to 1980 there are only five records those five records are all I think, you know, close to masterpieces, certainly every single one of them has a masterpiece on it. And it's kind of a shame that just, you know, nobody talks about them anymore. It's all, it's, it's, you know, we talk about dad rock a lot on this show. I mean, is there anything more, this is almost granddad rock, frankly, at this point, right? You know, it's, it's stuff that, that there's, there's no blazing guitar solos. There's no uh, wild metal moments. There's no avant-garde moves, but there's just an incredible craft and incredible thoughtfulness and stuff that to this day just moves me to tears. Frankly, there are songs that he has written that I will hold closer to my heart than almost anything. You know, you know, I talk about all the time how Radiohead and Pavement, Arcade Fire, modern bands are like, you know, truly some of my favorite groups of all time. And yet, you know, I, I will say there are Jackson Brown songs that I find to be every bit as moving. In fact, precisely because they're so direct and they they take these issues head on and they handle them with such sort of you know unassuming grace um they're as good as anything that's ever been out there in popular music and i just hope that people will learn about it during this show and i, I was i've been thinking about something cameron said at the beginning of the show which is um jackson brown should be considered one of the best singer songwriters of, of all time and I, I don't know, in my mind, I don't, like, place him in that category. He should be. And, and I was trying to figure out while Jeff was talking why that is. And I, I think maybe part of it is he wrote so old from a young age, as Jeff mentioned. I mean, even as a 22-year-old, you know, heck, even as a 16-year-old, uh, as we'll talk about in a bit, he, he was writing these songs that were far beyond those years um, with, with, with kind of wisdom and, and insight that was that was beyond you know the time he had spent on earth thus far and i you know i you know i wonder of course how the more political um uh, lyrics and, and the more political albums of the 80s may have affected his reputation uh w- w- you know among the, the singer songwriter class I, I just don't know but i i never really tried to put him in that pantheon of of you know an elton john or or, or key uh, singer-songwriter from that era, but again, when you look at what he did in those 70s, he, he should be. He should be mentioned um, among those artists, if not just for that work of the 70s, leaving beyond, or leaving what would come beyond. Um, and that 70s work starts with uh, with my introduction to Jackson Brown, which was uh, my, my dad literally having the album, which I always thought was called Saturate Before Using, because it says so right at the top of the album. It's not. It's, it says on the spine of the CD. I yeah. mean, uh, I, I think Jackson Brown makes the joke that like even his record label doesn't know what the album's called. <laughs> right. It's self-titled. It is just called Jackson Brown. But it's a, it, it's a water bag, and it was meant to replicate one, and so it says saturate before using across the top, and that's what I always thought that, that saturate, I, I, it, but, you know, 
I think it'll answer to both uh, both uh, titles if, in fact, you are trying to find it somewhere. Uh, but this this debut, 1972, from from Jackson Brown. But he'd been writing for years beforehand, which is one of the reasons the album I think sounds so complete. It, it's not a first batch of songs. It is uh, songs that have been have been crafted and honed and improved upon over the past years that he was writing for others like Nico and, and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and and, uh, and and others. So right from the start, guys, you, you, these these lyrics that Jackson Brown writes and it would only get better are are just so striking in their in their imagery and so specific in in the subjects and specific in the in the uh, in the things he wants to point out and 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 point to in those lyrics jamaica say you will is the is the is the first uh song of the album it's the one that got him a record deal uh gave it to david geffen in, in 1970 and he threw it out or a receptionist liked the uh the photo of jackson brown so pulled it out and convinced david geffen to listen and eventually signed him to his own uh label uh, the birds covered this song in 1971 it's a really great way to begin a career i'll tell you um i, I gotta tell you that birds version i'm not a fan it's a sad <laughs> you know i mean it, it's on bird maniacs which is like the the yeah. regrettable forgotten birds album but uh I, I was waiting for jackson to do his own version i heard the birds version first and then i heard jackson brown's version and i was very glad that i uh, I, I went to his yes it's better it's better from the children so they would not tell We would stay there till her sister rang the evening bell To make us say Help me find a way to fill These empty hours Say Again tomorrow, the daughter of a captain on the rolling seas. She would stare across the water from the trees. Um, that's uh, from the start. Sort of establishes this wet and dry dichotomy, this wet and dry motif that would run through a lot of his lyrics on this album and in, and in future albums. Um, you know, Jamaica being a uh, a woman, and, and and he's going to sail with Jamaica until our waters run dry. It's a really good song. Uh, one song that people probably know, of course, "Doctor My Eyes," one of I think only two top ten hits for Jackson Brown in the course of his career. That's just a solid tune. Uh, I mean, from the start, the 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 four four beat and the drums, the congas, that that the piano chord that that sets a catchy tune before the lyrics even begin. It really draws you in uh, to to the song. Uh, later on, I really like from Silver Lake. That's a great song. Uh, the first time I think that he really wrote the, those counter melodies in the lyrics. Um, I don't think it works super well in this song, but he would hone that and get better with it. Uh, From Silver Lake is a wonderful melody. I like Under the Falling Sky later in the album, too. It's a great arrangement. Um, I I do like that that, that kind of fast conga line that goes through Under the Falling Sky, which is just a, it's it's a love song. And um, Looking Into You is great. I'll let someone else talk uh, perhaps a bit more about that song. But this is a wonderful debut. It really is. From from the clear, it's it's just presented very simply. The instrumentation is very clear. The production is direct. The lyrics are outstanding. Um, and again, it's from a guy who had been working and writing for six years. So perhaps we should not be surprised. 
I mean, the closest thing to a rock beat that you're going to find on this album is Dr. My Eyes, yeah. which, which is driven just by that little piano ostinato, like the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do that begins it. Um, Dr. My Eyes, of course, is his first great hit, his first great song. Um, and uh, the, there's a great moment. I don't know if any of you guys have watched the Eagles documentary, um, yes. the, uh, the history of the Eagles. Well, uh, Glenn Fry is sitting there talking about like the, the influence that Jackson Brown had on him as a song songwriter it's a great little story and he's like he was living downstairs from and yes. jackson brown would be living upstairs and he'd have a piano and then he'd just be lit you know fry would be listening to brown every effing morning afternoon and night working on that song routining it and he's like i hear the piano go thumping bombay 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 it would drive me crazy it's like why do you keep playing this thing but he worked on it because you had to sand out the bad stuff. You mm. had to re- remove the, the chaff and just leave only the wheat on that piece. And what it leaves you with is a, an absolutely perfect pop song with just you know the the, the lyrics to that song. Again, uh, for a, a young man and. Uh, to talk about these you know things he's talking about like a young man saying oh i've seen too much you know doctor my eyes have have seen too much and uh what's what's the yeah my my eyes have seen the years in the slow parade of fears without crying and now i want to understand um it sounds like you know something like a 40 year old would write this is why i was like going back and listening to it you know for the show and i'm like oh man man i relate to this song so much more than i did when i was 17 (laughs) it's kind of scary but uh it it just hits you so well and this is easy to forget that he was 21 when he did this 21 years old man Uh, that's hugely impressive doctor my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without crying now i want to understand i have done all that i could to see the evil and the good without hiding you must help me if you can doctor my The rest of the album, to me, this is, you know, there's five albums that come in the 70s. This is his debut, and I sort of give him that debut privilege where, like, okay, you know, you can be a little more unsure. The rest of this, I'm not as big a fan of. Jamaica Say You Will, much better on the album here with Jackson Brown's version than it is on the Birds version. Um, But I don't love it. Rock Me on the Water is another big, big favorite from this record. It's it's not the last song on the record. It's, it's the penultimate one. But it, it's kind of like a dress rehearsal for uh, something he'd be doing uh, on his next album uh, called For Every Man. And that it doesn't work quite as well as that. Uh, but the ones that really do appeal to me are um, a Song for Adam, which is a really kind of a sad, interesting tune about a, a guy he literally just you know shared a car with, drove with, you know, did a big, long road trip with became a friend and then he later found out that he had died in india sort of traveling the world did he jump from the you know uh, balcony of his hotel room or did he commit suicide i mean the song directly addresses it he says it's like you know they, they said he jumped but i think he fell um and then the other one that i really like is a child on these hills which which you know has that country feel mm-hmm. that 
is going to really start developing in his next album and especially the play out on a child in these yes, hills yes. With, the, with the harmonica and I was like it shows you that he's not just caring only about lyrics but he cares enough about the presentation of the music as well he is a singer and a songwriter and that matters he's not just writing vocals he's not just writing lyrics he's actually putting together music and he's cares as much as he can in this young early phase of his about the construction of the music itself I am a child. doesn't all come together on this album i think it comes together immediately on the next one but uh before you know we even talk about that cam what do you what do you think yeah i think you guys are spot on in your assessment i think this album is an incredible level of maturity for a 21 year old i do think that this sounds once you hear the later stuff it sounds like the first album it sounds a little it doesn't have quite the emotional intellectual heft of some of the later stuff um, but a, a couple of the songs you spotlighted, I, I, I strongly agree with. I mean, I, I think A Child in These Hills, there's this, this great shuffle to it. It almost sounds like you're like right, right in the rails with them. Um, Dr. My Eyes, obviously a big hit on the song. I, th- I think the lyrics are brutal and, and beautiful. Uh, and Rocking on the Water, which you mentioned there, you know, it, there, there's a strand of kind of biblical apocalypticism that runs through some of his best songs. And yeah. I think this is kind of the first time you glimpse that. And, you know, the kind of Brown criticizing people for being, you know, materialistic and, and self-obsessed. Uh, and I think, frankly, a lot of the things that were going on in the scene around him. And, you know, and he, he doesn't spare himself from criticism for some of this, as we'll see in The Pretender later. But, uh, you know, the, the opening lyric of Rock Me on the Water, oh, people look around you, the signs are everywhere. You left it for somebody other than you to be the one to care. And then the song kind of just grows from there. Look among you, it's there your hope must lie. There's a seabird above you, gliding in one place, like Jesus in the sky. We all must do the best we can, and then hang on to that. And I, I think it's it really is like the first of his great songs. Although, you know, we didn't even meant we're, we're going to get to these days in a minute. Uh, is a song he wrote when he was 16 that was first recorded by his then girlfriend Nico when he was in New York. Uh, that's on the next album i think is probably the first great song that he wrote um but it, you know obviously because it was recorded later uh people were introduced to it in a different way uh but yeah i mean i, I think this this is a great album i don't think it's his best album but i i think it's a remarkable start with a remarkable amount of maturity for somebody in their early 20s and you know you already see 
in these, I mean, he, he was kind of world weary by the time he was recording his first album. And I think there's a lot of beauty to it that, especially in the seventies albums, I think in the eighties, it gets more political, it gets more jaded and it gets less personal. Um, but just the, the weight of, of this album, I think is far outclasses a lot of his contemporaries. And I think it was only the beginning. The thing about, it being only the beginning brings us to his second album. And the funny thing about this, you know, when I was, you know, again, back in the day in college, when I was a kid, I went on and got all the Jackson Brown albums. Um, you know, the people at the record store must have thought I was a weird guy. I was buying, you know, <laughs> you know like Radiohead singles, you know, the, the complete works of the talking heads. And then I'm coming back the next day for Jackson Brown. They're like, well, is this kid, this kid's like a garbage dump. He just eats everything. You know, he'll just consume every, every kind of music that he can get but the thing is is that i really had you know those diverse tastes and when i got this album this album i didn't like this is the one brown album that when i first got it i didn't really hear anything on it that leaped out to me immediately nothing about it really appealed to me when i was a 17 18 year old I come back and I listen to it now and I love this record. I think this record is amazing. And I was like very set to like name what I thought, you know, my two favorite, you know, two key records. We do this thing at the end, two key records, five key songs. And I thought it was going to be, you know, two rather records. And I went back and I listened to for every man. I'm like, this kind of has to be one of them for me. This kind of has elbowed its way into the argument, I don't think there's really anything bad about this, but I'm, I'm kind of amazed at, at how this is a record that it, it's not for young people. There's nothing, there's nothing youthful about it. Again, Jackson Brown himself was, what, 22 now, you know, 23 years old. You know, it's his child, practically. And yet all these songs are mature. The only thing here that sounds like a hit, uh, it wasn't actually released as the single, is, of course, the first song, which is Take It Easy, which we all know from the Eagles version. You know, uh, Take It Easy, Don't Let the Sound of Your Own Wheels Drive You Crazy. I got to tell you, you know, not being a huge fan of the Eagles, I love it. I love it far more in this version than I do in the original Eagles version. Um, and I, it feels suddenly like a Jackson Brown song when I hear Take It Easy. And the thing I love about it the most, which is going to sound crazy, but of course, if you've grown up hearing the Eagles version on the radio until you want to literally, you know, uh, you know, drive into a median and, you know, you know, you know, end it all because you're so tired of hearing the Eagles on the radio is the great play out. I love the way this album is sequenced. It opens with two songs that segue into one another and it ends with two yes. songs that yeah. segue into one another. Take It Easy goes into Our Lady of the Well. And my favorite ver part about the entire version, the Jackson Brown version of Take It Easy, is just the instrumental play out. We all know about, you know, standing on the corner in Winslow, Arizona, seven women on my mind and all that crap. Those lyrics are, are, are have become cliche because they're just sort of associated with you know lazy Southern California rockers who like guys who wear cowboy hats and snort a lot of cocaine. But uh, the musical play out to this version that goes into Our Lady of the Well is one of those magical moments of of Brown's career. And listening to it in sequence after hearing uh, Saturate before using it, it is just a perfect demonstration of how like already he's becoming kind of obsessive compulsively uh, driven by the need to present his music in the best possible way. I gotta know if your sweet love is gonna say 
And uh, again, that's sort of what unites them in my mind with, you know, the Springsteens of the same era. And uh, I just, I love this album, but I want to turn it over to Cameron first to talk about it before I, I go ranting about all these other songs on it. Yeah, I think you're right. And your mention of the transitions. I mean, you know, I noticed listening to this, I, I've always loved the song For Every Man, but which is the closer of the album. And it, it, it's kind of Jackson Brown has these longer play out, beautiful exits to his albums but it plays in from sings my song to songs with me which i really hadn't kind of noticed before it's a good song, it's a good song but the way it transitions into for every man is with just, that thumping drum yeah right and this is the first album that david lindley played on a lot of the album and the slide guitar that he plays in these songs really there, there's something that just sears my heart about it and it's it's just beautiful it, it gets almost sound like it, it's the musical equivalent of that feeling when the sun comes out from behind the clouds to me and it, it's a, it's a heavy album and you know I, I mentioned the song these days earlier which i think are you know i i could see both arguments this is one of the few songs where i think jackson brown's version and the other version of it um are equal in terms of te- like skill and weight uh, a lot of the covers of jackson brown's i think end up sounding schmaltzier than because it got such a beautiful voice and, and a little plaintive, um, he carries some of these songs that are very earnest that other people struggle with. He has a humble voice, you know, like he does. He, he doesn't have chops, right. you know. He doesn't have any vibrato. He just has that that kind of like you know right. guy sitting at a piano, average right. dude. But it can't be too difficult, right? Right. Uh, right. And you know, I mean, I, I think that it's you know the Eagles version of "Take It Easy" is obviously not as good to me. I think Brown and Fry wrote this together, and JD Souther, who who I, I is sometimes credited, not always. I mean, my my dad, who knew them, all made the argument that he actually thought it was mostly JD Souther Souther album because hmm. the song is just very country. Um. But I mean, clearly, like Jackson got the song better because the Eagles screw up the lyrics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, the whole you know you, you you can't go through the song and talk about don't make the sound of your own wheels make you crazy. It's drive you crazy. Clearly, Jackson got that. At least that was his line, um, and, and it, it makes it a lot more clever. And you, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show that he kind of lacks humor i think there's actually a little bit of humor to him i think that there's a bit of like wry dark gallows humor that cuts through it's not like you're going to be rolling in the aisle like you know he he was very close with warren zivon there's there's songs of warren zivon's that make me laugh out loud there's nothing that does that for jackson for me but there's moments that kind of make you grin and you know there's kind of you're in on the joke um i think you know, the, there, I wouldn't say it's the greatest song in the album, but I think Redneck Friend is actually kind of a great rocker. Right. Uh, Elton John, who's uncredited, plays the piano on this song. Apparently. Wasn't he credited as like, you know, Larry Piano Hands or something silly yeah. like that? Yeah, it's some fake yeah, credit. Problem. He wasn't like legally allowed to play in the U.S. at that point. <laughs> um, so they, you know, they're hanging out and he played on this.
you know, in some ways, this kind of feels more similar to an Elton John album than, than a lot of the other stuff here. Just the, the way it's pulled together uh, and some of the influences. You know, clearly they're hanging out together and influencing each other at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know, these days is the most nostalgic back looking plaintive song you'll ever hear a 16 year old write, And I mean that, like, uh, you know, these days I seem to think a lot about the things that I forgot to free to do for you and all the times I had the chance to, uh, it's beautiful. And, and, you know, you should listen to it. You should also go back and check out that, that Nico solo album. They're dating at the time. There's this great story that Jackson tells about how he was out in New York. He, he was playing, uh, you know, backing Tim Buckley and then, uh, he and Nico had, had hooked up and, and Andy Warhol wanted him to play on the song, but wanted it to sound very modern. He didn't want him to play an acoustic. So he kind of relearned the part and plays this kind of beautiful, soft finger picking electric guitar version on it um, for the Nico version, which is different than how he, he plays it on this album, which is much more open chord uh, on the acoustic. Uh, and then Andy Warhol goes and puts a string quartet on top of it, yeah. <laughs> um, which is, which, you know, says a lot about Andy Warhol, but I, yeah, I think it, it's an interesting contrast in, in the two versions. I, I actually might like the way he plays, uh, on the Nico version better, but I think his voice on this is just brutal. I mean, the thing about that song, I, I, I keep like, you know, telling myself, okay, a 16 year old wrote, you know, the lyrics like, well, I've been out walking. I don't do that much talking these days. Again, like he's like a 75 year old man. (laughs) These days I seem to think about a lot, the things that I forgot to do, but there's that, the lyric on this song is just so beautiful. 16 year old kid wrote that final line where, you know, yeah, don't confront me with my failures. I had not forgotten them. That's a teenager. I know. And that's so beautiful. I mean, that's like a comment that I've had so many times. Like when, you know, I get into fights with people like, listen, you don't need to remind me about all the, the things that I've done, you know, that, that yeah. let you down. I remember, I, I know them. Don't, don't hurt me one more time. Just want to have this time to reflect on my failings. Oh God, it's such a perfect line. And then of course on, on the, the album version of this it ends with that incredible guitar solo this is the thing this is a song that never raises its voice and and, and when i it was i think the first first exposure i had to jackson brown the first thing i got is i got you know the greatest hits it was whatever that one cd greatest hits of jackson brown was that was available in the 90s this is the only song from for every man that was available at the time it, it was on the record and um never appealed to me it was like well it starts with doctor my eyes okay that's upbeat and then it goes on to the stuff from late for the sky those are all really kind of immediately grabbing you songs these days is such a slow burn you have to sit with it and just realize how well constructed a song it is and how actually uh, how good brown does with the limitations of his voice Mm -hmm. when he sings that song you know i'll keep moving moving on you know things are bound to be improving these days one of these days like he, he doesn't have like a rock voice. He doesn't have a really great, you know, operatic or balladic voice. He's just, he, he is the everyman singing these songs. And yet he makes the most of his weaknesses, his, his, his sort of unpretentious vocal style. And that song, by the time it ends and you have that guitar play out, it, it just wrecks you. Just wrecks you. It's such a good song. Well,
the time in quarter tones to ten, my friend. Don't confront me with my failures. I had not forgotten them. And These Days is actually the song that, <clears throat> one of the songs that drove me to dig deeper into Jackson Brown's cat, uh, catalog because the first times that I heard it were actually others doing it, uh, you know, in more recent vintage. Paul Westerberg did a great version yes. of it on Come Feel Me Tremble. Fountains of Wayne did a version of These Days, which is on their Out of State Plates album. It's in uh, The Royal Tenenbaums, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, Elliot Smith would play it live. Uh, and even more, more recently... Um, uh, my wife watches This Is Us, and This Is Us used uh, these days in one of the episodes, uh, probably last season, somewhere along those lines. And it's just a, it, you guys have said virtually everything. It's a brilliant song with outstanding lyrics, and Brown treats those lyrics vocally. You know, his, his voice is just spot on, uh, using exactly what he has. He's not stretching, he's not, he's not, you know, just straining to hit high notes. He is delivering it as he can. Um, you know, he, he knows his faults, he knows, he knows his failures, as, as the lyric says. It's a great song. Uh, Cameron had mentioned, you know, Jackson Brown is not thought of as being funny or laugh out loud, but I agree that there are points and songs in which there are are little, you know, jabs of humor or 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 neat observations. You know, ready or not is not a laugh out loud funny song, but it's a it's it's an amusing song. It's a great little story song about um, you know getting girl getting a girlfriend pregnant and and, and the way that Jackson Brown plays off the. Um, the phrase getting into getting into your genes getting into her genes and in verse one she's having a problem because she's pregnant and in verse two he's having a problem because he can't you know get into he, he, he can't score right i mean it's it's it's, it's a nice little well, well, i thing. believe he took a punch from the the unemployed actor who who tried to insult her and then that's how he ended up winning her heart which yeah. is just a great little anecdote like yeah he got thrown through the door but he ended up going <laughs> home with her that night That barroom door and that girl came home with me. Now baby's feeling funny in the morning. She says she's got a lot on her mind. Nature didn't give her any warning. Now she's gonna have to leave her wild ways behind. She says she doesn't care. Uh, there's all sorts of people here. David Crosby, Glenn Fry, Elton John on, on Red Duck Friend, as you guys mentioned. Body Rates on here, uh, Joni Mitchell's on here. Um, I, I think these songs are. I would say this. I think these songs are are not 
quite as good as the ones on the first album, but I like their arrangements more. They sound, they're fuller. They sound a bit more complete on this album. I I think these first two albums are very, very similar, very even in terms of of quality. I think this is, the songs on this album to me are clearly better, and there's no better example of that than the last one, which is For Every Man. And I, I will always love this song with a particular, you know, ferocity because it's an answer song to a song that I absolutely loathe, which is <laughs> Wooden Ships by Crosby, Stills and Nash. It's on their debut album, very famous song, you know, Wooden Ships on the Water, Very Free. Uh, you know, this is the, the, this sort of almost quintessential you know, insufferable hippie fantasia about like, oh yes, all these these you know squares are going to kill themselves with their nuclear war and their poisonous foods. We're going to sail away and we're going to leave them all behind to die. <laughs> They'll all die, and we'll stand on our boats and we'll watch you as you die on the shores as we sail away. Don't you regret not being enlightened like us? And oh, it's. Uh, the song itself on a structural level it was of course done by jefferson airplane as well and then it was done by csn uh, it's it structurally it's a, it's a, it's a well written song it's got nice harmonies all right but the lyrical the spirit of that song it just makes me want to vomit i always hated it and then i found this song which i only later after after hearing it buying the album and hearing it, i re- i found out Jackson Brown literally wrote this as an answer to wooden ships. Hmm. He was like, he, he listened to, you know, he was living with David Crosby apparently. And like all their friends on their boats, like living off of the, you know, in the San Francisco Bay and dreaming of <laughs> you know, floating away. And he, 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 he doesn't quite put it this way, but it's clear that he kind of got disgusted with them. Yeah. Just saying like, like you people are, you know, you just, you just abandoning everything, leaving everyone else behind to die. What about the average schmo who doesn't have a boat, isn't a rock star as being left behind, you know, as you guys all go off to watch us die. And there's that great line where it says, you know, make it on your own if you think you can, but somewhere later you're going to have to take a stand and then you're going to need a hand. And uh, I just, I, I love the, the last verse on that where he says i'm not trying to tell you that i've seen the plan was it turn and walk away if you think yes. i am but don't think too badly of the ones who are left holding sand you know standing out there on the shore just like as you sail away they're just another dreamer dreaming about every man and again i'm so impressed with the spirit that animated that song you know you know him thinking about well you know what about everybody else in the world you guys you're living in your heads you're you're probably you know smoking a lot of drugs sort of abandoning yourself to these you know fantasies uh, of leaving the world behind but you know what about the society what about all your friends your family the people you're leaving behind i'm so impressed that young jackson brown in the middle of this whole scene which is you know somewhat abandoned and you know rather hedonistic it's southern california in the early 1970s for god's sake i can only imagine what kind of <laughs> drugs and groupie scenes were hanging around at this point that that was his take on it it was so so balanced so thoughtful and uh it's one of his great songs
left holding sand He's just another dreamer Dreaming about every man Yeah, I will say, I think one of the reasons that Jackson Brown carries so much weight with me, uh, you know, it, I, I think a lot of that music from that era was great, but it was so self-indulgent. It was, and it was kind of the worst of boomerism in terms of we're going to save the world and we're going to fix everything and we're so right. better than everybody else. And look at all the, the, the wonderful things we do. And then, you know, just like piled high, higher and deeper with cocaine and he cuts through the bullshit, to be honest. Like he yeah. really, like he, I, he has like, core values that carry through but he doesn't like the he sees the faults in his generation he sees the the problems and frankly very early on here he really sees where his generation's kind of self-indulgence is heading yes and and i mean that not just in his own life but i mean that in the timeline of of you know this is still the early 70s mm-hmm that far removed from Woodstock and the whole generation's just coming into its own and thinks that it's going to save the world. <laughs> and he, you know, sees hope, but he also sees the, the BS in it and, and sees the self-contradictions and the self-obsession in it. I mean, I, as I, again, this is, this is the kind of thing that is going to be a hallmark of his writing all throughout his career, certainly throughout his glory years. And of course that leads us to uh, an album where for me at least the peaks are almost as high as Jackson Brown ever got, but the album itself doesn't hold up. I think Chris Gaum actually might have said that like, you know, he gave it a B and he said like, you know, this is an average uh, that like, uh, you know, like the great stuff is so great, but the stuff that I don't like is, is not good. And uh, this is late for the sky. It's 1974. There are three songs on this that I think kind of go into the pantheon is all-time great Jackson Brown songs. The title track, which I think is the, is the least of those, I think it's good, but I don't love it. But then there are two songs here that, um, you know, when you talk about how you have a very powerful and, you know, weirdly personal and difficult to explain emotional connection to, uh, I have that connection to Fountain of Sorrow and For a Dancer. Mm-hmm. These are two songs that, uh, I, you know, when I first heard them, I was like, I, I'm going to learn these songs. I'm going to play these songs. I'm going to sing these songs because they, they reminded me of uh, somebody who I knew, who's still my best friend, uh, you know, outside of my wife, obviously, to this day. Um, the beginning of Fountain of Sorrow, that lyric where he says, um, you know, looking through some photographs I found inside a drawer, I was taken by a photograph of you. There were one or two I know that you'd have liked a little more, but they didn't show your spirit quite as true. And then there's this line, you were looking around to see who was bes- who was behind you. I I can't get over how he captures that. that. I had a photo of my friend who looked just like that. She was turning around, looking back at me, and, and, and she'd been through some really tough stuff in her life. Um, and uh, this song so perfectly encapsulated who she was and who we were. And I'll never forget how powerful that was. And also kind of, it was the moment where I realized like there's a skill, there's an art to writing sort of about, you know, I'm sure Jackson Brown was writing about somebody he knew. I think the the rumor at least is that the song's about Joni Mitchell. I don't know if it is, um, but uh, it, it doesn't have to be. It's about 
person that you've known in your life, that person who 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 completely maps onto that song, and everything about Fountain of Sorrow, a very long song, maybe the longest song in his career, piano-based, it comes to an end, and then it comes back into this great chorus where it says Fountain of Sorrow, Fountain of Life. You, you've known that hollow... Fountain of light. You've known that hollow sound of your own steps in flight. You've had to struggle, but now you're all right. And it's good to see your smiling face tonight. And that is just, you know, even now talking about it, it gets me emotional, um, which is something I cannot say for any other singer songwriter of this era. I can't even say that about Springsteen, honestly. Springsteen's writing about these sort of, you know, mock theatrical fantasias. As much as I love <laughs> the wild, the innocent, and the East Street shuffle, like when I listen to Incident on 57th Street, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm not gonna really understand spanish johnny and puerto rican janie except intellectually but when i listen to fountain of sorrow i think to myself that's my life those are the people i've known in my life fountain of sorrow fountain of life you've known that hollow of your own steps in flight You've had to struggle You've had to fight To keep understanding And compassion in sight You could be laughing at me You've got the So this is, I, I, I think I'm seeing where, I think Jeff and I are going to have a disagreement about the next album, and we do here too, because I really, really think Late for the Sky is outstanding, virtually from start to finish. It's probably his finest lyrical album. I think lyrically it's just excellent. Um, they're trying to save money on the production of the album, and so they, they end up used as, using his touring band. I think that sharpens uh, the, uh, the backing track as well. David Lindley's guitar all over this place is just outstanding. Um, and those those very frequent themes that we have from Jackson Brown early on all pop up here. Love and loss and, and who am I? And, 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 and of course, uh, some of the ap- more apocalyptic themes as well. Uh, I love Fountain of Sorrow as well. Jeff spent uh, a good deal of time on that. Uh, man, The Late Show is such a great song as well, This, uh, especially the, the strings toward the end of the song. But, you know, lyrically, everyone I've ever known has wished me well. Anyway, that's how it seems. It's hard to tell. Maybe people only ask how you're doing because that's easier than letting um, uh, 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 how little they could care. Um, and that, again... He's only 24 at this point. We keep mentioning the age, but it's true. Um, No one ever talks about their feelings anyway without dressing them in dreams and laughter. I guess it's just too painful otherwise. Taking the personal and trying to make it universal, I don't think it ever gets better for Jackson Brown than on Late for the Sky. The title track is is outstanding. Uh, I love Lindley's guitar tone that just kind of pierces through the melody on Late for the Sky. Talking with the soldiers and the boys While they scuffle through your 
of all the empty miles and the years that I'd spent looking for your eyes. Looking for your eyes. Now I'm sitting here wondering what to say that you might recognize. Just too painful otherwise. And Ford Dancer is a career highlight. Yes. Um, I mean, a song that uh, it was when I was reading a little bit, a bit about it was played at, at the memorial services for both John Belushi and Phil Hartman. Uh, and actually, Jackson Brown played it live at, uh, at Phil Hartman's memorial service. This, you know, Brown returns to this... Uh, this kind of meditation on death uh, theme for a number of songs through his career, but it's never better than it is here. And again, I think lyrically, this album is just so super strong. I mean, for a dancer, that that line, you know, there's there's, there's at the, in the end, there's one dance you'll do alone. Um, toward the end, somewhere between the time you arrive and the time you go, uh, maybe a reason. Will be a reason that you were alive that you'll never know. You'll never know. Um, and even in in all of that, that that is kind of laying on you. This is hard, heavy stuff. But he still gives you a "Don't let the uncertainty turn you around. Go on and make a joyful sound." Um, and, and again, set to just a wonderful backing track uh, uh, delivered in in Jackson Brown's voice which again he controls so marvelously um he knows exactly how to use the voice for dancer is a magnificent work um you know before the deluge i i, I like uh farther on especially the, the second gear kind of hits uh when it kicks into the chorus but man the the heights here are so high late for the sky is just an outstanding album and i think one that that gets overlooked there's not really you know there's not really a a single here uh it's not one that, that cracked the top 40 i don't think and so it gets lost in the shuffle sometimes, but I think it's it's Jackson Brown truly at the height of his powers. Yeah, no, I, no I agree on that. I, I mean, and I think you mentioned before the Deluge. I, you know, I think that is arguably. I mean, it's one of my top five that we'll get to at the end. I, I, it may be my favorite Jackson Brown song, just in its incredible sweep and. Yeah. The, the organ that comes in is, is so cutting. I mean, it, it is a Jewish guy. This is about as close as I come to going to church. It really, it feels <laughs> biblical and it, it, it feels you know, inspired. And, you know, it, this is one of those songs that you can read individual lyrics and it's beautiful, but the lyrics in, in their entirety and the way they sweep together is just incredible. And, and you know, the, the closing chorus, which has just some incredible harmonizing. I think David Crosby was one of the singers on this. Right. Uh, I believe Don Henley too. You know, let the music keep our spirits high, let the buildings keep our children dry, let creation reveal its secrets by and by. When the light that lost, that's lost within us reaches the sky. It's so simple. It's it, it sounds it's a prayer. It's an ecumenical prayer and it's just beautiful. And it's all about kind of all of the ways that people are chasing their tails and making all these assumptions and all the ways that people waste their time and spend their time and what it what whether it matters in the end you know it, everything gets swept before the deluge and I, I just remember when uh when katrina hit and just i, I needed an emotional a, a song of emotional heft to kind of play to match the mood what i what i was seeing 
all the horror on, on my TV and I put this song on and, you know, it, Scott, I think you mentioned that like, you know, some of these songs just make you tear up. And this is one of those songs that I can't get through without yeah. tearing up. And on the brave and crazy wings of youth, they went flying around in the rain and their feathers went so fine, torn and tattered. For me, it, it's for a dancer. Uh, again, I, I, I think of a song that, that it meant something to me when I was 18, and it means so much more to me now that I'm 38. And, I, and I've watched, you know, people who I love pass away. And uh, it, it just I'm talking about it now, and it hits you. I, I, I listen to that lyric, and I love that lyric because it, it, it's not like an artiste's take on death you know it's not pretentious it's not flowery they're on these huge you know like really elaborate metaphors and clever wordplay it's jackson brown literally singing i don't know what happens when people die <laughs> I, I can't seem to grasp it as hard as i try it's like a song playing right in my ear that i can't sing but yeah. i can't help listening and then the, the, you know there's that great line that follows it right up where he's like, you know, I can't help feeling stupid standing around because I, I know you'd rather we were dancing, you know, dancing our sorrows away because the name of the song is For a Dancer. And then there's that chorus that, again, it just reminds me of the people I know who I've lost, who I've loved, who tell you to just do the steps that you've been shown by everyone you've ever known until that dance becomes your very own. No matter how close to yours another steps have grown, in the end, there is one dance that you'll do alone and that is to me sort of like a, a sort of a metaphor in my life at least for the journey from like adolescence to adulthood i i heard that song one way as a kid i hear that song in a completely different way as an adult and so this is what i mean and i say like you know jackson brown it's, it's not like hit music for the teens you know <laughs> um, but it's incredibly powerful music for people who have lived life and that's why i love that song so much Like a song I can hear playing right in my ear I can't sing, I can't help listening And I can't help feeling stupid standing round Crying as they ease you down Cause I know that you'd rather we were dancing Dancing our sorrow away Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I mean, the more I listen, to, you know, I, I love this stuff as a kid. I've always associated this with my dad, but you know, hitting my mid thirties uh, and kind of entering the period of life that he was when you know he knew Jackson a little bit, and he was friendly with David Lindley, and then you know when I was a little kid, he's about the age I was now. You know, it's it just there, there's there's such weight to these lyrics and. I don't think it. It's not. I mean, he, he. There's. There's a lot of sadness to his stuff, but there, there's just a lot of depth and understanding of life and, and and of maturing and what that means, what you gain, what you lose. Speaking of maturing and what you gain and what you lose, I don't think that could be any better possible introduction to his next album. Took two years. New producer John Landau, who used to be a music critic, I might point out, and then became Bruce Springsteen's producer. Kind of Sven Gallied him. I don't know. Some people would argue that it was for the better. Some people would argue it was for the worse. But because Springsteen and Brown had always been close and Landau had always liked Brown, well, Jackson Brown said, okay, you know, help me produce my next album. And the next album is The Pretender, an album that a lot of people consider to be a peak of Brown's discography. But I know Scott incorrectly does not like that much. <laughs> um, I love this album. This is an album that, again, I, I can't even emphasize how different it feels to me hearing it now uh, and, and considering its lyrics now uh, than it did when I was a child. The song, The Pretender, the title track, it ends this album. This, this album begins and ends with two of his greatest songs. The Fuse opens it. The Pretender closes it. Um, the Pretender in particular, a song about, you know, basically, you know, the end of yuppie dreams, the way that everybody, you know, starts out. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to come up, I'm going to be an astronaut, this or that. And then you end up getting a house, having a wife and kids working an office job and, you know, doing the best for yourself that you can. And you actually ask yourself at some point on the way, well, did I sell myself out? Did I not live up to my potential? Is there some sort of compromise I've committed here? I don't know. It's such. It's a song that combines both bitterness and irony, but with just beautiful compassion. And then it ends on that that great line: so "Are you there? Say a prayer for the pretender. He started out so young and strong, only to surrender." And uh, that, to me, may be the single greatest moment of Jackson Brown's career. That song. I'm gonna. the pretender who started out so young and strong only to surrender I have so much more I could even say about that one piece uh, as opposed to the entire album itself, but I'm going to let you guys talk. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, The Pretender 
is just such a perfect song and it, it there's a, a hint of bitterness to it uh more than a hint of bitterness to it this is one of those songs that i think as there's moment it's so beautiful in moments and so sincere but there's some biting cutting humor in these lyrics and uh you know i i think that it's if you're going to start with one jackson brown song i would start here and you know i i think that this album is a little less it's not quite as tight as the last album i think linda paloma is not a great song yep. right yeah uh, but you know daddy's tune is okay it's a little too plaintive it's a you know, song towards his dad who he had a strange relationship with but th- I, th- there's some just real heaviness here and and bitterness but but kind of world weary beauty to it and and between the last album and this one jackson brown's wife uh, overdose and and probably committed suicide and he was left with you know very young son uh and he was dealing with a lot of heavy stuff at this and the song here come those tears again was actually written uh with his mother-in-law his former mother-in-law and the the nugget of the song i from what i understand like some of the lyrics she'd written were before her daughter killed herself but were uh, to possibly about her uh, and and it's you know it's it's him singing about dealing with a lost love and probably dealing with his wife who just killed herself and it's hard to listen to but you know it, it in some ways it's it's a perfect song. Yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, just look, looking kind of how it plays through is, is ideal. I, I also think that it, it's easy to overlook it because I think that this music itself is kind of, it, it's good. It's not as intense as some of the rest of the album, but Your Bright Baby Blues, I think, has maybe some of his best lyrics mm. of the album and of his career. There, there's this biting line. Uh, he, he's, he's singing, you know, that somebody, it's, it's things aren't going well with them uh it's you know a breakup song and you watch yourself from the sidelines like your life is a game you don't mind playing to keep yourself amused and just kind of the the cuttingness of of how detached that is you know the next lines i don't mean to be cruel baby but you're looking confused you know it's not quite at the level of james taylor's daddy likes to work uh in terms of uh brutal bitter breakup of the 70s of that scene but it, it, it cuts me it, it, it's brutal and yeah i i think you can make a case that this uh, you know it's this is one of my top three albums of jackson's i don't know if it is my top two but i, I think the, the highs on this especially with the pretender you just can't argue with 
I mean, between here come those tears again, and then side two opens with was the only child, which is obviously about his son, and then daddy's tune, which is about his dad, and then sleeps dark and silent gate, which is another great song, and then it ends with a pretender. Whew. <laughs> it's just, I mean, Jackson Brown's never been light music, you know, except for like I guess take it easy, right? You know, that's about <laughs> as easy going as Jackson Brown ever got. Uh, but this is dark heavy stuff but it's beautiful before i let scott talk and you know i'm i'm, I'm such a bastard I, i'm stealing all this time i gotta point out that this album as i said it ended with the pretender but it begins with the fuse scott was telling me earlier i was like you know i don't really know if i like this album. i was like come on listen to the fuse again <laughs> that song is so good whatever it is you think you might have you have nothing to lose through every dead and living thing time runless runs like a fuse the fuse is burning the earth is turning and the production on that song is just this is the point where i was like okay john landau congratulations you brought your born to run thing to uh jackson uh, i love that production it, it's it's a it's a piano ballad that suddenly turns into a disco thing but it suddenly just uh, deviates away from it again and goes back into the sort of slow piano balladry. And then, you know, he has, you know, multiple Browns singing all over him, you know, on the chorus and the pre-chorus. I just think it's a magnificent song and just an absolutely triumphant way to open a record that is otherwise just tough, tough, but in a good way, tough to hear. back and reconsider especially uh, after we get into these discussions but I, I i you know i stand by i just this album does not um it is not as as good certainly as the previous one it's not as good as late for the sky I, I i don't love uh landau's production on a majority of the songs here i don't i think it blunts some of the uh directness and, and the messages of, of, of some of the songs that are on the album I, I think the arrangements and the treatment on some of them harm um, the individual songs. Linda Paloma, for one. I, I don't really like the horns on Daddy's tune. Um, you know, the Pretender you talked about is fantastic. Uh, I think Your Bright Baby Blues is, is probably the, the next best song of the album. It's a really good one, too. His lyrics about finding uh, temporary fixes to permanent issues. There's a whole uh, verse there. Uh, the, it's so hard to come by verse that, that pretty, I mean, I, I don't have any firsthand experience. Uh, what I imagine, you know, drug addiction is like. And certainly at this time, uh, in this era, that's something that many had familiarity with, Jackson Brown likely included. There's a very warm arrangement to it all. I love the uh, uh, the questioning too no, ma no matter where I am I can't help 
a feeling I'm just a day away from where I want to be, never quite fulfilled, um, never quite, you know, grasping that ring, so to speak, uh, which is, again, a, a theme that kind of pops up on Jackson Brown tunes from time to time. I can see it in your eyes. you got those bright. Yeah, The Pretender is very good. I, I like Here Come Those Tears again. All right. Uh, I'm willing to give it another uh, spin, of course, and, and and maybe try to find the songs inside the production. But I, I will admit, I think the production is a, is a main hurdle for me to getting getting through and getting to some of the things that Jackson Brown was trying to do on The Pretender. Uh, of this, you know, this opening, what, five album streak or so, I, I, I think it's probably my least favorite. I don't like it as much as the debut, and I, I don't like it as much as, as For Every Man either. Well, then what do you think of Jackson Brown's f- first and really only attempt to do something rather avant-garde and weird, uh, a little daring and a little strange? So uh, what did he do? He he pulled a Neil Young. And what I mean by that is that uh, Neil Young famously, uh, when Harvest hit, uh, became a huge number one massive hit album in 1972. He followed it up with a, an album that he still has not allowed to be released on CD <laughs> called Time Fades Away, which is literally a live album with all new songs uh, that uh, just, you know, it was they were recorded on his follow up tour, which is a drug disaster uh neil's voice was shot people were dying left and right that's a story we'll save one day when we do our neil young episode hopefully uh, what did jackson brown do he did something similar to that he put out an album called running on empty in 1977 and this is an album of all new songs there's news news it's it's a quote live album but it's it, there's, there's nothing here that's ever been recorded before and it's all new stuff and so, some of it is in fact written with his bandmates and some of these songs are covers and it's sort of a concept album about life on the road and what happens well of course it begins first of all with his single most famous song of all time if there's any one song that you know by jackson brown i guarantee you it is the title track running on empty which is as close to actual rock and roll as mm-hmm. he ever got uh man who's a singer songwriter he always had the lighter touch in his production antics uh but with this uh this is one of the most powerful things that he'll ever write and it's about you know it's not just about being on the road it's about as he says looking out at the road rushing under my wheels you know i don't know how to tell you how crazy that it was in 65 i was 17 and running up 101 um he's talking about his life as as an artist as a man as an adult running through all these things and never really paying attention to himself never really you know taking that time for self-care and then finding out now that he's he's old now that it's the end of the decade that he's out of gas and uh and of course it's all it's all uh you know you know anchored by that incredible guitar solo that steel mm-hmm. slide that is, is it a lap pedal steel guitar i think yep. from uh i believe so 
from it, Lindley. It's Lindley, right? Who's yep. playing that? Yep. I just can't get over how beautiful that that guitar solo is. It, it's almost it almost supersedes the lyrics. I, I don't even care about the lyrics. The lyrics are great, but the the guitar speaks so much more eloquently than any lyric ever could about that song. people would say that this is jackson brown's greatest album even though it's the one on which he writes the fewest songs and i don't know if i would disagree with them what do you guys think yeah i think you're right i mean you know there's there's four covers or partial covers here he does a lot of interesting new stuff with the song um but i mean the way running on empty opens the album it's just like it you are racing on the highway with him and you know you, you kind of feel like they, you know, the wheels are coming off. You're running on empty, literally, you know, it, it, there's that line late in the song. I, I look around for the friends that I used to turn to, to pull me through looking into their eyes. I see them running too. It's so, even when he, it's this propulsive bouncing, chugging upbeat feeling song. He's got this, there's, there's, you know, everything's falling apart feel to it. And I think he's just got this beauty, the way it goes into the road and, and Rosie are the next tracks. Rosie's a funny song about him, you know, trying to hit on a girl. She falls for the drummer. He goes home. I, I've, I've heard a pretty strong argument that he goes home alone and Rosie is really his right hand. You wear my ring. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. Opposed to just going on with a roadie. He's not happy with, uh, either way, not, you know, not exactly a good look for him. Um, he, there's a cover of the old blues song cocaine that he does with Glenn Fry, which, you know, if you're going to record a song about cocaine in a hotel room in the middle of nowhere, Glenn Fry, probably- <laughs> if anybody knows about cocaine, my friend, it is Glenn Fry. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there, there's, you know, the original lyrics about you take Sally and I take Sue. There ain't no difference between the two cocaine running all around my brain. It's great. But then, you know, he's got this added verse at the end about, you know, how he's, you know, in, in, at the hospital, the doctor says, you know, here you're 21. That's impossible. You look like you're 45. I think is the lyric, and it, it's just like, yes, okay, yes, yeah, I love that. <laughs> you're wearing thin at the edge. I was talking to my doctor at the hospital. He said, "Son, it says here you're 27, but that's impossible. Cocaine. You look like you could be 45."
Um, and, you know, I think Love Needs a Heart is an underrated, just beautiful song. And another one where David Lindley's lap steel almost, you know, I don't know if it, it would have been a great song without it, but there's just a beauty to it. Um, and then the way it closes, uh, you know, the loadout, I think, is this perfect capper to running on empty in terms of um, what it's like to be a road band and what it's like to kind of live 23 hours a day of monotony and boredom and misery for that hour you're on stage and the glory of that. Um, and then transitions to a cover of stay that I think is probably the best version of the song. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's better. It's better. The, the versions of course that people know is the Maurice Williams one with, you know, the high falsetto that's from the early sixties. I think the Hollies actually did a hit single version of it too. Um, which is kind of fun. Uh, but this is the one. This is the one, and especially because it makes so much sense in the context of the loadout. It's yeah. such a conceptual song. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, you know, now the seats are all empty. Mm-hmm. Let the roadies take the stage. He's talking about after the concert. But of course, you got to, you know, think about this in your mind. He's playing this as like the last song in the show, right? This is look, this is recorded live near my hometown. It's Meriwether Post Pavilion. So I grew up in uh, Potomac, Maryland. This is right up the I ninety five on uh, in Columbia. And like, you know, this is the last song of the show. And he's singing. You know, the seats are all empty. You know. Like, tonight the people were so fine they waited there in line and when they got up on their feet that made the show and this is a great jackson brown line because it's so simple but perfect and that was sweet <laughs> but i can hear the sound of slamming doors and folding chairs i just like, it's like you don't have to you don't have to over decorate it's just like that was sweet man that was awesome yeah. tonight the people were so fine they waited That's a sound they'll never know Roll them cases out and lift them amps Haul them trusses down and get them up them ramps Cause when it comes to moving me You know you guys are the champs But when that last guitar's been packed away that I still wanna play So just make sure you got it all set to go Before you come from my piano I love that and then the way it goes into stays prayer, you know, it's I, it makes me as a writer want to be a better editor just how tight everything is here Yes and, I, you know, I, I think it's just an incredible amount. You know, I mean, you, you mentioned that Glenn Fry story at, at the beginning and what drove Fry nuts, but also inspired him. And he talks about this. Uh, I don't think I haven't seen the documentary. I've heard him tell the story a different time is just how much work Jackson Brown would put in on each and every song, mm-hmm. rewrite, reworking and rewriting every lyric and pulling every chorus apart and stripping it down, you know, flattening it out and fixing it and tightening it. And, you know, this song, this album, I think to its credit, 
is a little looser than some of his earlier stuff. Yeah. And because it's live and because of the live instrumentation, I think that, you know, I, I keep talking about David Lindley, he's the unsung hero here, and he actually sings on stage with this incredible falsetto at the end. It, he almost sounds like an alien child. Um, and you, I, I think that this is, yeah, it, it's it's a kind of ramshackle, sloppier album than the, the earlier ones in some ways, but I think it works. I think it is, it is almost perfect. I think this is an album where uh, the it is is it is the whole and entirety of the album that makes it the the individual songs save maybe we're, maybe we're not empty I, I don't think reach the heights of some of the previous work but mm. taken as a as a whole as a thematic you know composition it just it really works incredibly well uh, from from start to finish from the beginning from running on empty um, you guys talked about uh, that uh, two quick notes I do love the uh, the the uh, mechanism, you know, in 65, I was 17. In 69, I was 21. I like that a lot. And there's uh, that line, which pops up again throughout his writing, that because um, he's taking personal things and trying to bring them to an audience, but he's also careful often to not say that he knows everything. And, right, and running on empty, you know, the, I don't know about anyone but me. Um, he's just telling you what it's like uh, for him and in his band down the road. Maybe it's different for Springsteen or whoever. I don't know about anyone but me. It's running on empty. Um, you guys mentioned Stay. You guys know the trivia quickly about Stay, the original version, the Maurice Williams version? Yeah. The original uh, Maurice Williams and the Zodiac version of Stay is the shortest song ever to hit number one on the Billboard charts. Uh, I think it's, it's like a minute 37 or something like that. Shortest song ever to hit number one of the Billboard charts. Stay by Maurice Williams and the Zodiac. The Road, uh, Danny O'Keefe song. I really like that. And and that, that transition where they go from the hotel room to the stage after about two and a half minutes or so. You would think that wouldn't work. Like it would be like a weird sort of trick. But I think it, it's fantastic. So you tell them you remember. But they know it's just a game. And along the way their faces all begin to look the same When you stop, let them know you got it down It's just another town along the road Well, it isn't for the money And it's only for a while You talk about the rules And you roll away the mile um, You Love the Thunder is another up-tempo one, kind of in the running on empty vein that uh, Jackson Brown had a, had a co-write on, that, that, that coda, the la-la-la-la coda, uh, with the backing vocals coming in. Uh, nothing but time recorded on a bus. You can hear the bus engine uh, running throughout the song, a cardboard box used for a kick drum. I mean, all these little features and all these little accoutrements that, that really bring, again, that theme uh, to life uh, on the road, life on the road, recording on tour. 
Um, and, and I don't know if, you know, some of these songs are not his, clearly. Um, some of them are covers, some he co-wrote. I don't know if he's a little freer writing things or singing things that he did not directly write or is not solely responsible for. Uh, but I think vocally on cocaine, as Cameron mentioned, he's just, that's a great delivery on cocaine. And there's a lot of those through the album, uh, even though it's all, you know, recorded live, whether it's on a hotel room or a bus or backstage or on stage. Uh, it's all live stuff. It's all on the road. And again, I think thematically it holds together so, so very well. I don't know if it's a coincidence or if it's absolutely perfect that the one time that he kind of released a little bit of creative control and he kind of recorded an informal live on the road album, did a bunch of cover songs that he came up with a sort of the most perfect and most con- you know well-crafted album statement because he's such a control freak. And of course that, that, is is good a way to explain uh, i think what unfortunately happens in the 1980s he took three years between this album and his next one which was uh his only number one album hold out it's the only one that ever went to uh, number one in the billboard charts um but i just you know i mean i thought well it's a number one album this will be great it's not it's not a good album. It's 1980, Hold Out. There's like a couple of decent songs on it. I think Call It Alone is okay. I, I, I do like the last song, Hold On, Hold Out. Very long, uh, long ballad. But just um, s- something happened between the 70s and the 80s with Brown that, uh, you know, maybe it was getting into politics. Maybe it was, you know, getting into, you know, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Hey, look at the clash, man. (laughs) Bruce Springsteen for that matter. Um, But with Brown, it felt like it sapped him uh, creatively that he was starting at this point to go into a place where the lyrics and you know his his deep sincerity about his causes which you know nobody can begrudge him uh were it was a trade-off between that and the musical creativity that he was so so good at uh, giving us in his 70s work i don't know if you guys like this album more than i do um i don't think it's really very good but uh, you know some of the political stuff and that that's not quite apparent yet i mean here and there yes hold out it seems like he's writing from a different place completely um some of the more personal songs are are gone it begins to look a little more outward uh there's less piano there's less acoustic guitar there's far more you know electric driving things i mean there's seven songs in this album two of them are called hold out i mean one's just called hold out the other's called hold on hold out uh but the two singles here uh that girl can sing has never been my favorite jackson brown song um boulevard's okay it's got that unique loud guitar riff um, it's got a pre-chorus melody I, I like a lot. You know, you just think about those two songs. He had never 
really written songs like that before uh, that I don't want to say were targeted for the charts, but certainly had a more pop sheen to them. It's a, it's a very different way of songwriting, I think, for him. And the, the, the quality from top to bottom, again, there's only seven songs. I, I kind of like Holdout, um, the, the, the first Holdout. Um, uh, I don't know about much else. Uh, Call It Alone's okay. Yep. Um, there's there's some... I think there's some real uncertainty here about about exactly what the the end goal was in in, in putting Holdout together. It went number one. It had two really big singles, but it seems artistically really unfulfilled. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think this is the last Jackson Brown album that I like. I think it's a huge at least for about a decade it's a huge drop off from the the five albums that came out in the 70s uh you know i, I gotta say like i i used to actively hate disco apocalypse uh <laughs> and i used to actively hate disco and as i've kind of come around on on uh disco a little bit over the last couple of years i kind of like that song it's okay it's kind of fun and it, it's a little tongue-in-cheek and i'm not sure how much of it is like him joking and how much of it is him really getting in the groove and you know it, it, it might be a weird comparison but it almost feels like uh like an early ver- like lcd sound system song where it's like <laughs> how much of this is a joke and i kind of like it sing isn't bad it's not great uh you know missing persons and call it alone i both think i think are both decent songs that probably could use some editing but missing persons at six and a half minutes is just a little long and i feel the same way about hold on hold out at the closer that you know he clearly i think is trying to kind of reach for that big sprawling beautiful yes meaningful heavy album closer that he had on so many of his earlier albums and you know whether it's before the deluge or or or, you know something like that and it's it's eight minutes long it's too damn long and like if it it had been six minutes long and they tighten it up a little bit i think it would have been in that pantheon and it just it it loses me it's it's good it's not but it's goes on too long I, I always connect what's to come. So I always connect Disco Apocalypse, by the way, with uh, Disco Strangler from uh, the Eagles, <laughs> which is just from the year before on on uh, the long the run. Long run yeah. I don't know if they were talking about things, but I, th- yeah, uh, I always connect those two songs. <laughs> well, okay. Before we get into the problematic Jackson Brown '80s, which we can kind of move through pretty quickly, because I think you know the, his golden era has passed us at that point. I do want to say uh, you know a couple of words of praise for uh, his sort of slightest song but also one of his biggest hits which is somebody's baby which was the sort of the flagship track on the fast times at ridgemont high movie soundtrack it's kind of funny because fast times is you know a sort of a a classic film cameron crowe's great debut um we all know it you know for the classic music that it has it has you know let's let's let zeppelins on the soundtrack there's that great um you know not pg at all scene involving the cars (laughs) moving in stereo and uh phoebe cates um 
Um, but uh, the big hit single from it is Somebody's Baby, which is just, again, lyrically, a very slight song. You know, like, you know, she must be somebody's baby. She's going to be somebody's only light, going to shine tonight. But this was actually my first ever exposure to Jackson Brown. This is one of my dad's favorite songs. You know, he taped it. We had a copy of it. So I heard it all the time growing up as a kid. And I really do think it is a great song. I think it's I, I think it's a fantastic song. I think from a song, it's it's just a such a well built, sturdy love song, and it, there's no uh, there, there's no you know regret. There's no uh, I, I mean a classic Jackson Brown sense of you know I, I missed out on something or I can't find myself. It's just you know he's gonna be somebody's baby. The regret is just that he can't you know he can't get the girl, but it's still a straight love song. And I love the ways. You know, the, the, the verses all have that, uh, like, descending step-down melody to them. You know, I'm talking to her friends when she thought nobody. And then, then the chorus goes the other direction, right? Somebody's baby tonight. Uh, I think that construction is brilliant. It's, it's really one of my favorite pop rock uh, songs of the 80s period. I think it's just a brilliantly written song by Jackson Brown. strongly agree and i mean cameron crowe used it maybe over almost over overused it in that movie it feels like it's like every other scene <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's incredibly effective in a couple of those scenes and you know jackson brown is one of those guys that i think um is incredible at, like to use parts of his music uh, in movie soundtracks and you know we see that uh royal tenenbaum's one of my favorite moments in movie music history is when the nico you know his, his guitar and nico's these days comes in mm-hmm. uh, but yeah I, I think it, it, it's really a great little ditty i mean like that, that's what it is it's, it's, it's a pure pop song um and i think that he tries to recreate that a couple of times through the 80s yes, I, I think yes. part of i think frankly he runs out of ideas in the 80s is his bigger thing i think it's a little cynical um he doesn't want to sing as personal as he used to um there might have been some relationship dynamics there for that reason um and he gets very political and i think honestly the political stuff just sounds very hectoring which which we're about to get to um and you know having seen him at enough honor the earth benefits and 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 no nukes (laughs) benefits with my dad growing up yeah some of that stuff when you see it live plays a lot better than when you hear it on the album uh especially with the right crowd but it's just not quite as tight but i I, I do. I do think that. Yes. I mean, you probably know somebody's baby. You probably don't. Even if you don't know who Jackson Brown is, like you'll recognize it immediately. And I think that's one of those songs that's like deeply influential. You know, you saw a lot of the great '90s, uh, early 2000s pop bands. I mean, Fountains of Wayne, Stacey's Mom's video. They literally like their, their music video was based on the same scene as Somebody's Baby. It was mm. based on right. Yeah. It was 
very clearly an homage to the movie. But I think, you know, a lot of their songs were Jackson Brownish. And you hear Jackson Brown in, in a band like the Gin Blossoms. You mentioned, you know, Paul Westerberg. Um, you know, the replacement's one of my other all-time favorites. Kind of when Westerberg gets near the end and he starts writing more pop soon, tunes rather than punk songs. I, yeah, I, mean, I think you can hear some Jackson Brown in that even. And uh, you kind of see the, the, the carry through. And, you know, as Jackson's losing some of his vision, I think you kind of see it get picked up by some of these other real tight songwriters. So I guess now we, we get into the political era of Jackson Brown. And I guess this is this is the part where he gets really, really kind of like uh, interested in South American and Central American politics <laughs> and, you know, the, the Cold War and things like that. These three albums, I think we can take them all as a whole. It's Lawyers in Love, Lives in the Balance and World in Motion. And I, I really, you know, I, I have them all and I've listened to them all rather diligently. I don't like very much about any of them at all. But there's one thing I do want to say. This first one, Lawyers in Love, has, you can never take it away from him, is the title track, yes. which I just think is hilarious. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. It is such a bitter satire of sort of like the Reagan 80s. It's, it's you know, Wall Street came out a couple years later, but this could have been a song about Wall Street. There's this great line. There's so many great lines in it where he's talking about like, you know, where we're waiting for World War III while Jesus slaves to the mating calls of lawyers in love, which is just like, you know, all these awful, like, you know, young urban professionals just, you know, you know, pursuing their personal enrichment with no other thought in mind. You know, this is, you know, him in the 80s sort of wondering, well, where did all of our 70s idealism go? There's that, that great line at the end where it's like, you know, the Russians escaped like off the planet. They, they took off in flying saucers. And so now we've got all this bloom. We didn't got the room. And I hear that the USSR will be open soon <laughs> as a vacation land for lawyers in love, which is in its own way, kind of a wonderful vision. <laughs> the USSR will all go to the Crimea and vacation as lawyers in love. But oh my God, this, there's just pure spite in that song. But it's also a great song. It's a, just There's no way to deny it. The lyric is sharp. The music is sharp. And I think it's actually one of his last truly great songs. I don't love the music on it. I think, but I think it's intentionally chintzy. I think it's supposed yes. to sound like a parody of the eighties and yes. it nails it. And like, if you come into it as a parody song, it's hysterical. Uh, you know, I, I think tender is the night is an all right song later in the album. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a rocker is pretty good. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just uneven and it just, it feels lightweight compared to some of his earlier stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, this isn't quite as political an album as, as we get to with Lives in the Balance, which is, you know, ripped from the headlines. Uh, you know, I, I think, Sol- you know, Soldier of Plenty for America are, are maybe actively uh, Soldier of Plenty isn't bad. Uh, I, I do think In the Shape of a Heart is kind of a pretty song, but it That's just it's song. There were other holes as well in the house where our nights fell. 
Far too many to repair In the time that we were there People speak of love Don't know what they're thinking of Reach out to each other Through the push and shove Speak in terms of a life And the learning Try to think of a word For the burning Some of what bothers me about these nothing albums. He had, it's nothing he hadn't done before better already. Yeah, and, and the production kills me on this stuff. It's, it's the yeah. same feeling I have with some of the mid-'80s Springsteen albums, where even when I see the stuff live, I like it. The recordings of it is just bad, because it's just got this, like, chintzy, bouncy, like, er, er, early, like, overproduced, like, keyboard sounds. Yeah, synths. Um, synths just kill you. You're yeah, right. They break me. And, and I kind of feel like that. that's kind of where we get with uh, these two. And then... Uh, you know, just to whip through, I mean, world in motion, I think it might be the low point. Um, and you know, just he, he does the song. I am a Patriot. That that's like a Towns Van Zandt cover sort of, um, that it, it's kind of works live surprisingly, but when you hear it now, like it just, it, it sounds like a self parody and it's not how he means it, but it's just like, it's, it's so on the nose with all the political lyrics. And you know, I think he actually turns a corner a little bit for the better after this album, but I, I want to give you guys a chance to, to talk to talk about these <laughs> i got i got nothing good to say about these two albums and it has nothing to do with the politics i don't care about politics it has everything to do with the fact that as you pointed out it's just like his songwriting inspiration the, the music isn't good the melodies aren't good in the production even where there are some you know as you say in the shape of a heart decent melody just the production slaughters it i just you you cannot get past these 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 synth and drum ticks that just infected so many artists particularly the ones who like survived through the 70s and then got into the 80s and were like what are all these young kids doing <laughs> and then they they add this stuff to their sound and man it does not work for me at all what about yeah. you though seek out that live recording of that song because it's actually a good song I will. Yeah, uh, the lyrics are great, but man, yeah, the version of this is just hard to listen to. Yeah, lawyers in love. The title track. Uh, Jeff's absolutely right on that. Great song. Uh, Tender is the night, which is one that still gets played. I do think that's a decent balance of a pretty good set of lyrics, um, some um, not quite overbearing synth tones, and you know Rick Vito plays on Lawyers in Love, and David Lindley's gone. That's a big change in tone. Uh, but Vito's guitar on Tender is the Night has this nice bluesy feel to it and a strong hook. Tender is the Night is pretty good. Lives in the Balance, uh, I do like in the, in the Shape of a Heart. Uh, For America is, 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 is okay. It's an up-tempo rocker. It's got this weird 80s piercing saxophone on it, which I guess we should mention around this time is the, uh, is the Clarence Clemens song that Jackson Brown did, uh, You're a Friend of Mine, was right around here, like 85 or so. People might have heard that one. Uh, I have really not much good to say about World in Motion, except there's a song, is it the word justice, where he talks about some weapon shipment should be secret. Um, that, that's not the, the kind of thing you expect to hear in you know, a pop song, talking about weapon shipments. But there it was. Yeah, I think um, he literally name checks Oliver North. Yeah, on, uh, on World in Motion, the production is really bad by this point. And, and that's probably, World in Motion is probably Jackson Brown at his most you know, sermonizing where the lyrics aren't sort of, you know, he's, he's no longer trying to 
kind of personalize or, you know, universalize the personal, uh, but taking the universe and trying to make it matter to the listener in some way. And, and I think it's it's not really effective on most of the album. The production harms it greatly as well. But after World in Motion, and uh, this is this next album is about where my Jackson Brown listening and, and knowledge kind of dries up. I, I didn't follow him through the late '90s, but there's a there's an album. I think it was 1993, and I do recall at the time it was marketed as like a Hey, it's Jackson Brown's comeback album. Hey, he's. Well, I mean, the title of it is called I'm Alive. Right. I'm still so, like, still yes. here, still around, and you know what? It is pretty decent. I, I you know it doesn't stand up to the to the '70s work by any stretch. It is far better than most to the albums that he put out in the 1980s. There are a couple of really good moments. The title track um, harkens back to that classic Jackson Brown Jackson Brown sound. It's kind of light shuffle rhythm to it, uh, guitar riffs adding just a bit of muscle to it, kind of an uplifting melody despite some kind of heartbreaking lyrics, uh, although he's looking forward, not back in I'm Alive. There's one called Two of Me, Two of You, which is uh, which again is is more of a classic Brown theme of, of hiding yourself from those that, you know, that you love the most, uh, having having two selves you present to people. And there's one I think was written for a for a James Brooks movie called I'll Do Anything. Ooh, is, that was a, a famous flop. It was yes. a musical that had all the music stripped out of it. <laughs> uh, but I like that one pretty good, too. I'm Alive is, uh, it's not uh, in the final two albums we're going to talk about uh, in, in a little bit, but I think it's 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 uh, it's the high point of this, this kind of late era, uh, Jackson Brown. Yeah, I strongly agree. I don't think it's as good as the five from the 70s, but it's a return to form. Uh, I think I'm Alive is a terrific song. I want to go I want to lose my sorrow and be free again And I know I've been inside When I think of places I could have been But I was dreaming of you With my heart in your hands And I was following through With my beautiful plan It's, it's, a, it's a brutal breakup song. You know, you've been dating Daryl Hannah for about a decade, and uh, it was a pretty tumultuous and, and potentially violent relationship at the end. And, you know, there's some Me Too accusations there. Um, but, I mean, I'm Alive is just this beautiful song. Uh, and I'm not going to go into Jackson's breakup. I really don't know enough about it to say anything intelligent. A lot, a lot, a lot of allegations thrown around on both ends. Yeah. Really Daryl Hannah herself was, a, was more than a bit abusive, but who knows? Yeah, that was that was that was both both sides had some pretty credible allegations and some pretty nasty stuff that went down. Um, Sky blue and black, I think, is is it, it's about the breakup. I mean, the the best. I feel like he returns to emotionality here. Mm-hmm. You know, right? Kinda, I, you know, I think he kind of had shut down in the eighties, and I don't know. And I, I'm not going to try and psychoanalyze what happened there, uh, but the albums that he did when he was dating Daryl Hannah, he didn't sing about himself much, and they just they didn't have that heft. Uh, and he breaks up, they, they have this awful breakup, uh, whatever happened there. And all of a sudden, there's this kind of searing emotionality again. When the touch of the lover and the soul of a friend begins, there's a need to be separate and a need to be one, and a struggle neither wins. Where you gave me the world, I was in a place I can make a stand. I can never see how you doubted me when I let go. Yeah, I was much younger 
I think it's, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think it's an uneven album, but like, I'm Alive, My Problem Is You, Sky Blue and Black, uh, and, and Two with Me Too, you, I think can hold up to a lot of what he did in the 70s. And I think this is, you know, if as a big Jackson Brown fan, I can listen to this album and enjoy it and rarely skip a track. So yeah, for me, I look at these 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 sort of uh, '90s into the modern era albums, sort of like the comeback, the the, the I'm not just writing political tracks era Jackson yeah. Brown stuff, right? You know, so it's like I think of I'm Alive, Looking East, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, Naked Ride. It was Time the Conqueror, and he has the most recent one actually has one really good song on it, Standing in the Breach. I kind of take them all as a piece. Um, and of course, you know, people will say, well, why aren't you covering these as much as, you know, his earlier albums? I'm like, come on. Have you ever heard The Pretender or Late for the Sky? There's a reason we're focusing on those. They're, <laughs> kind of, they're fantastic albums. Each one of these records has a couple of songs on it that I really like. And then a lot of stuff where it's just like, well, you know, he's, he's not at the full strength that he used to be. I'm alive. I think, you know, uh, Cameron already talked about the best songs on that. I do want to say that there's a really great song on Looking East, his next one that I, I, I think should be singled out and that's called the barricades of heaven absolutely oh it's an absolutely it's a fantastic song you know is it pages turning torn pages burning faded pages open in the sun you, you got to bring your own redemption when you come to the barricades of heaven where i'm from it's a great chorus it's a great song and it, it's actually got a production that does justice to the song which is something that he had been lacking up during most of his 80s work it actually sounds like you know this is a late 70s jackson brown song problem is is that you know it's in the late 90s right now and so like you're already 20 years out of date and of course this is what you're dealing with when you're talking about these classic 70s singer songwriter types who are still making music unless you're bob dylan and you're basically working with like the elemental roots of all music <laughs> you know, like blues and soul you know you know, gut bucket folk stuff you know you know when you're jackson brown and you're in that more smooth studio milieu you know this stuff is going to sound a little bit encased in amber and that's the real criticism that i can bring to this later stuff is that it doesn't have that urgency and that that immediate relevance it doesn't feel like it's like on the cutting edge of what the sounds were at the time you know what was i doing in 1996 97 i was listening to you know i was listening if i was listening to the radio i was listening to radiohead and pearl jam and you know those sorts of sounds and then of course i'm listening to classic rock too it didn't have a place for me and so it this is when he you know sort of becomes just sort of that niche artist but i do like these albums i think there's good stuff on each of them i also just want to say one last thing about um a song that opens his most recent album uh it's 
I mean, it's five years old at this point, Standing in the Breach, a song called The Birds of St. Mark's. This is a song that I had actually heard a long time ago on a bootleg because it's his, one of his oldest tunes. He wrote it in 1967, uh, and he finally just, like I guess, decided to dig it out and record it again for some reason. Uh, and it's a wonderful song. A wonderful song that is, you know, I guess in a sad way, it makes you think like, well, how powerful he was as a child, as a young man when he was writing these songs, because this again, it comes you know, back to his earliest career. But uh, I really love, you know, those those lyrics where it's like, you know, all my frozen words agree and say it's time to call back all the birds I sent to fly behind her castle walls. And I'm weary of the nights I've seen inside these empty halls. It's a great song um, and a decent album. But, you know, at this point, it, it feels like, you know, he's just sort of doing this for his own personal amusement. You know, there's there's the, the, the urgency and the relevance that, that, that stuck to albums like Running on Empty or The Pretender is no longer there. Little lady turn and turn among my weary secrets and wave within the hours past and other empty pockets. Maybe we found what we have lost when we've unwound so many crossed and tangling misunderstandings. But all my frozen words agree and say it's time to call back all the I've seen inside these empty halls. Now, please tell I me. I will argument for Looking East. I think it's uneven, and there's four songs on this album you could just toss in the bin, and it would have been a better, much better album. But, right. you know, you mentioned The Barricades of Heaven. I think it's terrific. You know, I, I think Looking East is a great opener. Some Bridges, I, I actually think, like, if you're going to kind of wade into his political music, Some Bridges and Information Wars are actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, I think the album drops off at the end and like Nino is almost unlistenable, but uh, he sometimes plays around with, you know, Spanish music and it just, I don't think it works very well. <laughs> I've seen that, you know, it's from Linda Paloma on right. uh, early career, but I actually think this is like, if you're, if you're willing to, you know, make a Spotify list and take the four or five songs out of it that you don't want to hear is a good album. And uh, I, you know, I, I think that, it, it does have a highlight. I, I don't think there's a single song off the Naked Ride Home that you need to listen to. I don't think it's terrible. It's just not that great. Um, and then, yeah, you, you mentioned in Time the Conqueror, I, there wasn't much there. But, you know, you were talking about Standing in the Breach. And the song you're talking about, I think you're right. I mean, Birds of St. Mark's, I don't think it's the best version, but it is a great song. Um, he has a couple of live versions. Of it. It's just him and a piano I like better. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting, it, it feels, it feels like a capstone to his career. And I think this is how he meant it, is the song The Long Way Around. Yeah, the same uh, chord progression as these days, and, and and the way he plays the guitar sounds similar to the Nico version of these days, and has a lot of refer referential lyrics back to some of the earlier stuff. And you know, it gets a little political, uh, but you know, I, I think it's if you're a fan of Jackson Brown, you'll feel like with him on this. Yeah, you, you feel the nostalgia there. I don't know what to say about these days. I'm seeing people changing in the strangest ways Even in the richer neighbor 
and yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know if I'm hoping that this is his last album, um, but I, I do think that like it, it kind of gave you like a, a really good capstone on his career. If you want to kind of pull the full through line and get the taste of the eighties out of your mouth, uh, like it's, it's worth, <laughs> worth going through. I'm alive. It's definitely worth listening to looking East. And I think that standing in the breach has some strong moments too. And there you go. There's the political beats. Look at the uh, career of Jackson Brown. We have reached the point of the show in which uh, all three of us give you our choices for the two albums from Jackson Brown that you really should own and the five songs from his career that you you just have to hear. And as always, we start with our guest first, Cameron Joseph, Talking Points Memo's senior political reporter, is up first. Cameron, your two albums and your five songs. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not going to argue with any of the five from the 70s, uh, but two personal favorites are running on empty partially for nostalgic reasons or partly because i think as an album it holds together the best and late for the sky i think has probably the highest moments of, of any of jackson brown's albums and i i think that they're in different ways almost perfect and i put up against any other singer songwriters of the generation uh as i mentioned at the top of the show my my top five songs i these days, I think is, is his earliest song is just a perfect pop song. Uh, Running on Empty is the greatest rock song he wrote. Uh, and it, it's just, especially the, you know, the, the version on the album, the way it plays into the rest of the album, it's just one of the great album openers of all time in my mind. Uh, the Pretender, I, I don't think you guys are going to argue with, is it's just got so much weight to it. Uh, Fountain of Sorrow, I think, is a great song. I think the lyrics are beautiful, and the, it's so sad, but it ends on such a happy high note, or hopeful note at least, that I think is great. And I think the you know the, the, I mentioned earlier these incredible kind of re- almost religious apocalyptic songs. I think the best of them, and the one that weighs the most on me, and and I keep coming back to is Before the Deluge, and that might be my favorite Jackson Brown song. Uh, all right, we'll have some repeats here. We'll have some repeating uh, choices here. Uh, both albums, I agree with Cameron. I, I think Late for the Sky is probably his best work and contains his highest moments. It is it is, it is is the best of Jackson Brown at his peak. And then uh, from an album perspective, Running on Empty, as we discussed earlier, just holds so well together as a, as a concept and as a, as a thematically. Thematically, it holds together so well from start to finish. I think those are the, those are the two. Uh, song-wise, uh, These Days, which Cameron mentioned, popped up on my list as well. Uh, in, really insane to think of a 16-year-old writing uh, these days and have it linger for now, um, I guess, what, 50, 55 years or so after the fact and still be really affecting. Uh, from uh, from Late for the Sky, uh, both The Late Show and For Dancer, which I had uh, had discussed quite a bit earlier, uh, title track from Running on Empty, I mean, that's uh, that's just a classic Jackson Brown song. And, uh, I, and I, if you haven't heard it, again, I think Somebody's Baby is just a perfect piece of pop craftsmanship and it's a it's a tremendous song so those are my five jeff well i'm glad that i didn't even try to be contrarian this time because i was going to say late for the sky was one of my top two but when i went back and listened to these albums i have to say that my first choice is actually for every man his jackson brown's second album i think it's the first one where everything really truly came together for him i don't have a single thing about this record that i dislike from you know from the the silly eagle song all the way to the sublime truth of for every man there isn't a bad moment here i even think there are songs we didn't 
talk about, like Our Lady of the Well and Colors of the Sun, Thought I Was a Child. These are just great songs, well-written, well-recorded, brilliantly observed lyrics. And of course, the second album I'm going to choose is one that you guys all chose as well, and that's Running on Empty, because, yeah, it's funny. Ironically, the one where he writes the least songs, uh, <laughs> he, he collaborates the most with you know his, his side men, does covers, and he, his most informal and casual thing has his, its tightest conceptual balance. There isn't a wasted second on this album. Uh, there isn't a wasted moment, and it has some of his most powerful music. Um, for my five songs, uh, I would start by saying for every man which is the the absolute blasting into the ground of wooden ships that that song deserved uh, and also just like a real statement of compassion for you know the actual you know the people who live in this world and can't simply escape from their responsibilities or the horrors or the fears that are you know that people say are coming to them um it's such a powerful tune my second one would be fountain of sorrow i already talked about how this is just a song that reminds me of my closest friend and is just a beautiful piece of music in its own right for a dancer in the same way as a song that means so much more to me now than it did when I was a child. I feel like I've grown with it and I'm just learning to do those same steps that I've been shown by everyone I've ever known. And the dance finally has become my own. Um, the Pretender, the title track from The Pretender. I think the entire album is actually really good. I almost wanted to put The Fuse on here as one of my choices, but you know, I ran I ran out of space, so I'm going to go with The Pretender, the ultimate requiem for yuppie dreams. And then finally, I'll say Running on Empty, the title track from Running on Empty, which is, is probably his signature song. Um, if you don't know it, then you've been living under a rock. Uh, <laughs> I could live for that guitar solo. And again, because I am the host and I can do whatever the hell I please, I will just lead us out with a, a sixth choice, which is the loadout, that medley of the loadout and stay. Uh, this is one of the, the most wonderfully self-aware songs played live at the end of a show about after the show and then asking people to somehow come back and listen to the rest of the song. Won't you guys stay just a little bit longer? Wonderful, magical moment that he captured on his, probably his finest album. Political Beats look at the music and career 
of Jackson Brown. We say a thank you to our guests on this episode. Cameron Joseph, Talking Points Memo's senior political reporter covering Congress, the permanent campaign. Find him at TalkingPointsMemo.com on Twitter at Cam underscore Joseph. Cameron, thanks so much for joining us on Political Beats. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Jeff, you can find Jeff on Twitter at SoterixCD, uh, a fine episode. We're, we're not all that close, but we do have some big plans for the, the summer that are slowly coming together. I think that uh, there's some things to look forward to. Well, we may return to our wacky summer fun schedule where yes. we uh, schedule some some big, big artists that will require multiple installments. Stick around for that at SoterixCD for Jeff. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. The show is on Twitter at political underscore beats. Feel free to ping us there and join the conversation. We invite you to subscribe to our feed. You get all the new episodes right to you through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Or you can go right to nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab and find Political Beats and all the other fine NR podcasts. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.